Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Mason Jar on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and in just a minute, we are going to bring you an interview that Cindy Rollins did with Sheila Carroll, the founder of Living Books Curriculum and the proprietor of charlottemasonhomeschooling.com. But first, I want to take care of a little bit of business. Please remember to subscribe to The Mason Jar if you have not done so. Uh, we have a Mason Jar only feed that you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, please subscribe to that if you would, if you haven't yet. If you would like to subscribe to the Cersei Podcast Network, you can also do that. And that's where you can find multiple shows, including Brian Phillips, uh, Show the Commons, the Ask Andrew Podcast, A Perpetual Feast with, uh, with Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan, and of course, Close Reads, that uh, the show that I do with Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. We would love for you to subscribe to that and, and join the conversation and, and uh, become part of that audience. Um, if you have not yet joined the Mere Motherhood Facebook group, please do so. Head over to Facebook and just type in Mere Motherhood, and you should find that group pretty easily. Join us. There's some great conversation going on over there. Um, lots of, I think, what you'll discover are kindred spirits over there. So we would love it if you would join us over there. And, of course, if you have not left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, please consider doing so. It really helps us out a lot. It helps us with all the algorithms. And, of course, that helps us make more shows. And the more we kind of have a sense of how people are enjoying the show also allows us to make better content for you. So we would really appreciate it if you would head over and, and, and do that for us. Um, but that's all the business now. Let's talk about Sheila Carroll. In 2003... Sheila had a dream to create a truly unique learning experience using Charlotte Mason's methods. And she and her husband wanted to use all the proceeds of the sales from that method to take this curriculum to developing nations. Today, that dream is a reality, and their Living Books curriculum is actually used in five African nations. Sheila has two master's degrees, one in educational leadership and the other in children's lit. And she's also a professional storyteller, which I think comes across in this uh, interview that Cindy does with her. And her the research that she did with her husband, Jim, um, into Charlotte Mason's methods for organized learning, uh, they discovered that at the Armit Archives in Ambleside, England. They've got a wealth of experience when it comes to homeschooling, and they would love to help you. So to learn more about what they're doing with the Living Books curriculum, head over to Charlotte Mason Homeschooling. Dot com. And the Living Books curriculum is a K-8 Christian homeschooling solution, which is based on the teachings of Charlotte Mason. It offers homeschooling parents teaching guides, subject guides, classic living books, along with competent caring support whenever you have questions in the process of educating your children at home. The Living Books curriculum provides instruction in the traditional subjects such as history and language arts and science, and then it also incorpor incorporates the classic literature and nature studies and narration and storytelling and the use of local resources to enhance the educational experience. I think you'll find that there's a lot for your family, so if you head over to charlottemasonhomeschooling.com, you can learn a little bit more. Their site has a lot of great resources. There's advice for teachers and parents based on different age groups, so if you have a student that's ages 6 to 7 or ages 10 to 11, their site is organized to easily find advice on that. So you can just go there, you click on the advice by age tab, and then you can choose the age. Um, there's lists of books from the you know available from their site and from Amazon. Um, and there's just a lot of other resources, including audio and eBooks and FAQs and the blog and all that kind of stuff. So I highly recommend you go check out charlottemasonhomeschooling.com to learn more about Charlotte Mason and also the Living Books curriculum. All right, and with that, let's send you over to Cindy Rollins' interview with Sheila Carroll for the interview episode of the March. All right, and let's send you, okay. Okay, and with that, let's send you over to Cindy's interview with Sheila Carroll for the March 2017 interview episode of The Mason Jar. Enjoy. Okay, well, we are here today with um, uh, Sheila Carroll, and Sheila is uh, already just talking to her. She is a fascinating person with a lifetime of experience uh, in, in many, many areas, including, uh, she was telling me today, storytelling. Uh, she has a, a living books curriculum that you can find at charlottemasonhomeschooling.com, and also you can find there and on Facebook her... Um, her Living Books for Africa um, um, site, where where um, she also um, has a, a, a wonderful ministry to to Africa with with these same ideas and the same 
same story. So she's like a modern-day Charlotte Mason um, working around the world with these great ideas. So I'm just so excited to have her and talk to her today. And as we go along, you'll hear much more about her. She has generously offered us uh, a coupon code, which we will put up on our um, on the on the site, and she's also has a wonderful handout to give us because we are going to talk a lot about narration today. Um, and I know that's the that's the one thing that you guys have a lot of questions on, and it seems to be the bottomless pit, and, and rightfully so. So, um, so here is Sheila, and I hope you enjoy um, listening to her. So, Sheila, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hello, Cindy, and hello to all the listeners. Uh, Gosh, where do I start? Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, I'm a homeschooling mother and grandmother, and so I'm uh, pretty excited to see the next generation come along. I was a late-in-life uh, mom. I did not become a mother until I was 46. So I had a whole life and a whole career before that, and when Bridget came along, I like to say she made my life round because because now I had a focus for all the ideas and the nurture and the love. And as my husband and I went along, oh, even though both of us were educators, we knew that we, are, we were already seeing the decline in the schools. And so we knew that we wanted something better for our daughter. And so uh, we started looking into homeschooling. And one day, a friend of mine handed me, for the children's sake, and she said, you know, you're the kind of person that would probably like this book. And, <laughs> and most of the listeners know what a marvelous, tremendous book that is and how influential it's been in the life of thousands and thousands of people. And, uh, and it was in mine, too. And I said, Charlotte Mason. Now, remember, Kim and I are both educators. We know all the people and all the names in education. So I'm, and I'm saying, Charlotte Mason, I've never heard of her. She can't be any good. So, I mean, that was very arrogant of me. And I have since eaten humble pie many times because she, I, I count her one of the most superior, excellent educators I've ever known. Uh, so I, I um, went, or I asked my husband, because I was home with Bridget, um, when he went to the library, because he does teach at the university. So we had the good fortune to have a wonderful library and I said would you see if there are any books by or about Charlotte Mason so he comes back with home education which is the first in the six volume series and he hands it to me and I still remember the day and Bridget is 25 soon to be 26 so we're talking about over 20 years ago in which I opened the book just at random and I read three or four paragraphs and I said to myself, maybe out loud, I don't know, this is my life's work. And, and I think, then I stopped and I looked around, <laughs> like, what am I saying here? I mean, this came from such a heart place that I didn't really understand it. I do now. But I recognized almost immediately the depth uh, and the spirituality that was in her and in her works. And so, so we began. We began the journey. And there are lots of stories to tell about how that went, particularly when we get to narration. I have a, what now is a funny story. At the time, it wasn't. And um, just learning to use this method with, with my daughter. And as time went along, Jim and I were both so engaged by this process that she was teaching us. And... We had a heart for missions, so we knew we wanted to do something big for God. And so we set, and then we began to learn about the tremendous need, not for schools, not for buildings, but for educational materials. And so we said, well, what if we could put together a Charlotte Mason curriculum for kids in Africa? And that's where the work began. Uh, we made, we created the uh, 501c3 foundation, or not foundation, uh, nonprofit, uh, Worldwide Educational Resources, which was named in a sense after Charlotte Mason's overseas work, which was called Worldwide Educational Services. Oh wow! I did not know that. Yes, and 
So her curriculum was going all over the world, and we had this vision of ours doing so. So as time went by, just a few years, we had developed a foundation year, which is what the British call kindergarten, and I think first grade. And homeschooling families had heard that we had this curriculum and, they, and that it was a complete curriculum and not you know, bits and pieces. And so they contacted us and said, could we purchase this? Well, we took this as a leading from the Lord as a way to support the work in Africa. And that was the beginning of Living Books curriculum. Wow. So 100% of the proceeds go to support our, our schools and our teachers in Africa. So you offer a curriculum for American and, and British or whatever moms, and then you take the profits from that and you use it to fund your Living Books um, for Africa uh, mission. And that I, I and we wanted to. I really want to talk. Well, why don't we just talk about that real quick right here at the beginning because it is so fascinating. Um, what do you? Um, so how do you? How do you? What kind of books do you find um, that work in Africa? Well, first, just to, to to clarify a couple of assumptions that maybe the listeners might have, which I had. Okay. Uh, and that and that is that oh, um, over half of Africa uh, is English speaking. And uh, we initially went to India, but with India, the problem was you had to get government approval for your curriculum, and that was such a long, arduous process, whereas in Africa, um, they, they were not as well, let me say, um, they were open to whatever would help, I guess would be the right way to say it. And so we began to pray for someone who could partner with us in Africa, and we had a little list, a wish list, that it would be uh, someone who had uh, was an educator, had a heart for children who otherwise wouldn't get an education, and who had administrative abilities. And so one day God introduced Azuka Gubwadi, a Nigerian educator, administrator, missionary, who happened to be at a missions conference that my husband and I were at. And we began to talk, and that was in 2002 or three. And she is our feet on the ground. She's our heart in the land. Um, and her son, is, who is now in his 30s, is the heir apparent to this work that's being done. Uh, there's ups and downs with it, and we have learned a tremendous amount over the years. We had a lot of assumptions about how things would work. We thought that we could put all the materials in a box, send it over there, a teacher could open it up and follow the directions as long as they were simple and straightforward. We were quite wrong. The training that needed to take place first was with the teachers. Wow. So, uh, because um, just to, to help listeners understand what it's like over there because we picture our schools and it's not like that first of all millions and millions and millions of children will never get an education um, second if there are schools within a, a distance that they can reasonably get to they will have to and even if the school is free from, from the government they will have to pay for their books and their clothes now in some places that amounts to 20 or 30 dollars per year that might as well be a million dollars they don't have it and then the other problem is and this is where the teachers come in is that teachers have been taught in the same system that they are now teaching and a teacher has we went into a government classroom that had a hundred students no desks no chairs no paper no pencil no books and they were children from very little to probably 12 or 14. And the teacher had one book. It was the test that they were going to be tested on at the end of the semester. And she just drilled them on rote oh, memorization. Wow. And here's, here's the hardest part of all. Next to her desk was a bundle of sticks. And that was for beating the children. to make. Oh. Them. And when she broke one over their back, she took another. Wow. Yeah. This is where we were starting. So it's important for people to understand that the, the real um, change needed to be first with the teachers. And so Jim and I began 
going over and training Azuka, and pretty soon Azuka was pretty good at this, and she started doing the training, and then her son came along. So there's more stories to tell about that, but just one, that in a seminar with uh, some teachers new to this approach, and, and again, it's all Charlotte Mason, it's, all, it's narration, it's living books, it's nature study, it's everything that we imagine only adapted for an African climate, um, uh, a nation, like in this case, Nigeria or Sierra Leone is another place we work. So this, this teacher, who was an experienced teacher, he was very resistant to the idea of not beating the children. And that's thing one we do with them, is we don't, we don't shame them, but we explain that's not how you motivate children to learn. And he was very resistant to that. And then I went on to talk about the child as a person. And it was this that I, I saw his face begin to break. And I explained that each child is a gift of God, unique and unrepeatable. And what had happened is I touched a place inside himself where he had been beaten. Mm-hmm. And he stood up at the end. We asked for feedback at the end. And he stood up and he, he said, he told of a, a story of a boy that he had beaten. And, how, and then he repented to the group. And he, he said, I did as, I, as was done to me. He said, but no more. Mm. Wow. So even if that's all we ever do over there, <laughs> it's big. Well, I, you know, it reminds me that even in America, with, with Charlotte Mason schools starting up, that, that, that is one of the biggest problems is training teachers. And, we all, and even as moms at home, you know, we all come to it with a prejudice and a, and a, and a feeling like this is, you know, we're, like we're a, a making an adaptation to something we, we had instead of, you know, maybe just scratching it all and starting all over with a whole um, new paradigm. And I know schools really struggle with the idea of a drift, a mission drift, because of the fact that it's so hard to train to have teachers come in, uh, you hire a new teacher and she doesn't quite understand. And before long, you know, um, your, your school is drifting in a different direction. So oh, it's um, true, isn't it? that's something we have to deal with. And as we, as we do start these schools um, here, and I'm sure you have to deal with it there, which it sounds like you just had to deal with that right out of the starting gate. Yeah. But the teachers now that work for us, uh, uh, and then we train others. We, we give this away as freely as we can uh, to anyone who wants to learn how to use this. Uh, but uh, one thing I didn't mention, and I, it's actually probably the most relevant thing I could say right now, and that is uh, as of two years ago, we now have a registered teacher training center in Lagos. Oh, my. This is big. Oh. <laughs> this, mean, this, this means the government has accepted us, they acknowledge our work, and we have a, a model school that's out, we say it's out in the bush, which means it's about three hours from Lagos, and it really is in the bush. We have to go, mm-hmm. by, go by motorbike the last few um, miles. But um, So we have the model school that we built from the ground up, and then we have this teacher training center. So the, the goal now is to put in place a certification program for our teachers, anyone who can come to this and do it, based on what Charlotte Mason did with hers. You were asking me, Cindy, before we started, what did I want to do? I want to get an idea of what the um, actual syllabus looked like for Charlotte Mason when she taught her teachers. And so far, yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't that important? Yes, Uh, I do. I think that's extremely important. So before we move away from this, because I know you have other things you'd like to talk about, but last is to say that once all of this is in place and running well, we, uh, we have already received invitations from other countries and uh, to come and train their teachers. So what we will have are teaching ambassadors. Mm. And so these will be teachers going out into the schools that whatever kind of schools the country actually has working um, to cut from the inside, really. Is that is that what you're saying? That's correct. Wow. Well, that is a fantastic work. I know that it can't always be uh, easy, and it must be discouraging at times, but what <laughs> what a wonderful vision. Yeah. Well, to... You said your daughter, now your daughter is actually working in this with you um, yes. and, and, her, and her husband. 
Yes, Bridget and Emmanuel, and uh, they are a busy homeschooling family. They have their heart is to uh, not only have uh, biological children, but to adopt children, particularly those who have experienced um, trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they have a two-year-old, uh, an infant, and a fifteen-year-old. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> So they just jumped right in. <laughs> they they did, and they're doing a marvelous job. And as they there's some training for the children of trauma, and she kept saying to me, "Mom, this is just like Charlotte Mason. This is just like Charlotte Mason." And so, uh, hey, what? Just like Miss Mason said, I did not discover this. I, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I did not invent this. I discovered it. She said, I'm, I'm a person standing on the roadway, pointing the way. This is the way. Walk in it. Mm. And, and so it's there to be discovered. And I think that when, when you start looking at how children really learn, what they really need, you come up with very similar answers. Yeah, I found that across the board, that if, if somebody has come up with some truth, you know, so many times I'm like that, too. Well, Charlotte Mason said that, but, um, you know, we do. We land in similar places when we find truth. Um, it, it, it doesn't take us very far afield often. Um, and, and I love that you've, you're applying this in, a, in, in other cultures, as Charlotte Mason did also. I mean, that was her original. I guess she had a, a pretty wide worldwide. From what I understand, her worldwide work um, actually lasted, uh, um, continued long after people had forgotten about her. All the, and as we see, no one is, compl- you know, there's a resurgence here uh, and a new blooming. But um, there was a time when especially in her home country, that she was largely forgotten. Yes, yes. And it, I, Margaret Thatcher had a national curriculum mandate, which is not unlike our core curriculum. And she, so you had to have everybody on the same page uh, on the same day. And that, that would be a death knell to schools that were using this method. So I think already um, because there was the spiritual base to her work, the Christian framework, um, there was a tendency to move away from it and then, then uh, that. Yeah. And then that, that um, however, the worldwide educational services that I mentioned still exists in London, same place where it has, uh, except that I, I really took me a while to drill down on this. Um, they don't use her curriculum anymore. They use the, the national curriculum. Oh, interesting. Wow. Huh. Well, I guess that's a little bit of mission drifting. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Oh, well, that's very fascinating. So what we're here today, so I want to move away from this. I know we, I feel like we could just go on and on here on this subject, but we probably could go also go on and on about narration because um, I moms really get, um, it, it's very, very confusing topic for a lot of people. In my family, I was just kind of basic with narration, but I, the one thing I did right was I insisted that we do it every day, and I, and I, I even had my kids write a narration every day once they could, you know, write um, well. Uh, but and, and I, with a lot, I had a large family, and I think that's one of the key things that. And of course, they did a lot of reading. They, and I'm, if I was gonna fail, I, I'm glad I didn't let the narration um, off, you know, that that was the one area that I, I felt like, you know, we were strong in. But um, but a lot of moms are um, concerned about narration. And you, you've you given us, we have a handout, and I'm so excited for them, everybody to get a hold of this. But what are some, what are some things that you can tell us about narration? Well, first, uh, to, to assure the moms that uh, if you're struggling with this, you're in good company because many, many mothers um, struggle with this. And so because I counsel moms, I've had a chance to think about why why we struggle with this because I struggled with it as well. And although there are probably more reasons than I'm going to give today, I do have a couple of ideas that I hope will help you. One is... <clears throat> Uh, and remember, I told you I would tell you a story about narration. Well, this goes back to early days with Bridget and uh, my learning to use the curriculum. Uh, in those days, there was there were lots of books and catalogs where where you could find good books, but there wasn't 
um, a clear approach uh, that, that I felt I could use. And so I tended to skip around a lot. Now, I'm sure that there are moms listening who know what I'm talking about. If, if it's not working, it can't be me. And it's either my child or it's the curriculum. And so that's what we do is we try and use this curriculum with our child and maybe even some of us put pressure on the child to accomplish it. Then in frustration, look for another curriculum. And so I would say to moms today that um, pray very long and hard before you switch your curriculum to to another company or another uh, style uh, because oftentimes that's that's not the issue. Uh, So now here's my story. And that is, so Bridget uh, and I were were learning to do this. I was skipping around. She, a very bright, very verbal child, was resistant to narration. So we're talking about a seven, eight-year-old at this point. And remember, Charlotte Mason says, you don't begin formal narrations until they're six. And this is important. A lot of um, moms do this earlier. And I'm going to talk later on about why it is absolutely critical you do not try to do narration beforehand. You can do other things that are narration-like. But back to Bridget. Uh, So she was resistant. Well, I wanted my homeschool to be a success. I had an unhappy child. If she's unhappy, there must be something wrong. And so I'll try something different. Or if she complained enough about doing the narration, I would say, okay, well, we won't do that today. We'll do it another day. And it went like this for the year. And it wasn't a very fun year, to be honest. Uh, I felt I felt stressed and confused. Bridget was unhappy because she really, as I look back on it, she, you know, I kept reinventing the wheel. Right, right. And, <laughs> and children, especially at that age, they need consistency. They need to know what their expectations are. So, um... At the end of the year, I was pretty, pretty discouraged. And the, the, in fact, it wasn't even the end of the year. It was like April. And uh, one day, Bridget, just in absolute tears and frustration, yelled, I hate narration. I hate homeschooling. Okay. I'm, I, I know everybody here is nodding at this point. <laughs> yeah. And... I, of course, sent her to her room until she could get it together, give her a timeout. But Mommy had to take a timeout, too. And I went into my bedroom, and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I am a failure. I'm supposed to know how to do this. I'm an educator. Why can't I do this? And so I talked with Jim about it when he came home that day. And we agreed that it was pretty bad in our house and that we were just going to call off school. And I was a little, you know, calling up school doesn't mean the child just runs around the house. We read lots of books together. We did field trips. We, I mean, it was all meaningful learning, but we weren't doing curriculum. And um, I purposed when summer came that I would hear from God about what I needed to do about this. So I got my Bible, and I bought a new little spiral-bound notebook, you know, the kind you pay a buck or so for. Mm -hmm. But it was solely for this purpose. And I I purposed that I would listen, and if I heard anything or or saw something that caught my attention, I would quickly make a note of it in the notebook. I I really wanted to, to make this work. It was important to me. This It was not an option to send Bridget back to school. And... So I had to figure this out. So uh, for about a month every summer, we go up to this cabin that's right on um, Lake Superior, which is just incredible. And so I continued to listen, but it was getting closer to September. I still really didn't have a plan, but I had all these great ideas of things that I knew she'd love, activities and things. And I don't know, I can't even remember now. It's a while ago. But I do remember sitting on the, the beach looking out at the water and saying, Lord, I still don't understand. And I heard very clearly in my spirit, 
you're not being consistent. And mm-hmm. I, I, I just couldn't believe I was even hearing this. Surely this must be a mistake. I'm, I'm just making this up in my mind. And then I, uh, I thought about it and I realized, see, I thought the problem was the curriculum. I thought the problem was my daughter and, and a need for more discipline, perhaps, or something like that. But I was the problem. And th- that hurt because if you can imagine someone, an older mom who has committed everything to do this. I'm not saying if you're a younger mom, you aren't doing that, but I'm just saying it just, whoa, you know, I had some. You felt like you had one chance to get this right, huh? Thank you. Well put, exactly. And I wasn't getting it right. And now I was hearing that I was the reason. Mm. And so I realized that I just began to think back about all the switches in curriculum and Oh, things, you know, no, you don't have to do narration today, whatever, whatever it was. And so I said, okay. And I, I just repented of that. And this is something else I want to say to moms is the importance of repenting to your children when you know that you have erred in some direction in their care. They need to see you do that. And it's good for you, mom. <laughs> so I... I got out all the Charlotte Mason books again. I got a reasonable plan. It wasn't too unrealistic at all. It was very doable. But it included narration every day. And as we got back home, we, the first day of school, I sat Bridget down, and I, I said, this is what we're doing. And I paused, and I said, and you will do narration every day. But I first repented to her that, that I had been wrong in allowing things to go as they had. And this is now, and so then telling her, this is what we're doing, and we will be doing narration every day. Now I had to walk in that truth. I had, right. I had to do it. And it didn't go smoothly the first month or so, but I, I purposed in my heart that if consistency was the thing that was the, would make the difference, then it, it was the thing I would do. And I think that what you're saying is absolutely the key here in so many ways. And I've said this too, and I said this in my, I wrote a book called Mere Motherhood, and I mentioned in there that if you want to argue with your children every day, make uh, narration optional. <laughs> if you want to be miserable. <laughs> oh, true. You should, like, put a box around that. <laughs> yeah, and, and people don't really see, you know, I think we, you know, we, we do see it's hard and, and our boys don't like it. And yet, when you do this consistently and, and it, it's added to the rhythm of your day and you have that consistent rhythm, it's so hard to be consistent. And yet, it really is hard on a home school um, when, when it is not a consistent um, place. Yeah. And children need that expectancy that things are going to be um, as you say they are. It gives them security. And when they have that security, they can learn. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100%. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> um, well, the end of that story, of course, I, I was consistent. She did learn to do narration. She learned to do it very well. And in the handout, you'll see lots of suggestions on different ways. Once your child is fluent in oral narration, how to go from there to written and, and so on. But Bridget, uh, we homeschooled Bridget all the way through high school, and high school was her choice. We, we gave her the option of going to the local school, and no, she wanted, and she wanted us to continue with the Charlotte Mason method. So we had to figure that out, and uh, so we have now a, a, a course for parents of uh, teens how to homeschool high school, the Charlotte Mason way. But then wow. came, <laughs> then came the day when Bridget left home and went to college, and. Uh, I think it was the first day. It might have been the second day. She she was asked to to give a writing sample at, in a composition class, and she called me from the hallway, and she said, "Mom, you told me that I would be grateful one day." <laughs> mm. She said, "Mom, all the other students in the class could hardly put pen to paper," and she said. I was done in a few minutes, and what I wrote was fine. And 
another time in, in college, and she did go on to uh, study social work. Uh, and so these are very dry textbooks that she would say to me, Mom, I can learn a thing the first time I read it. Wow. And so again That's and wonderful. again. Yes. So moms, even though this might seem like a stretch right now, think of what you're doing for your children in the big picture. Keep the big picture in mind. They Yeah, we, we have no idea how few kids uh, are able to write anymore. It's really becoming a lost art. And for a child to be able to take what's in their head or uh, as a young adult and put it down on paper is a huge um, uh, bonus when they get to college. And they feel successful. If you could do one thing for your child, one thing only for their success in college and beyond, have them do narration every day. And oral narration is really a type of writing, uh, would you say? It is. It's it's the teaching you the process of writing, but only um, orally um, before you actually learn the skill of putting the pen to the paper. Right, and what, what you're what, at least what Miss Mason says is that by asking the child to attend to your words, you are teaching them the power, the habit of attention. That is what's behind this, is the ability to hear something or read something one time and be able to absorb it. And you don't really know something unless you can say it back in your own way. Yeah, that's. Don't, I hate when someone says that because I think, how much do I think I know that I really don't know? <laughs> well, if, moms, if you want to um, know what your children go through, ask them to read a passage that you would have read to them and you narrate. Yeah, I'm even shocked at how much my student... Uh, now, I teach other people's children um, at home in a homeschool environment right now, and I'm, they will remember the story that I've already forgotten um, because they've narrated, and, and, then, and they'll say, oh, remember this, remember this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, now I remember. <laughs> um, they have so many details that I, I have just totally forgotten. Of course, I am quite a bit older than they are. <laughs> so. uh, but one, thing, one more thing about narration, because I said I had two, two points Oh, that's I right, yeah. Yeah, so the second one is that once you first have begun, first of all, you don't begin until the child is at least six. And if they're, if they're pre-verbal, or not pre-verbal, but their oral skills aren't real strong at six, don't expect a lot, but imagine that they're going to grow into it. Prior to six, um, if you tell them a story, act it out with them. We did all the Bible stories with the cushions on the floor, and Noah's Ark was this cushion. And, you know, we'd take an extension cord and put a line there and say, well, that's where, you know, you cross the line uh, where the giant was, you know, uh, Goliath. And, I mean, we would act these things out so that the child had the story in their little hearts, but they, they didn't have to verbally say it back. But, of course, what would happen then is that night when Dad comes home for dinner or um, Grandpa comes to visit, they, they bubble out with the story. And, um, yeah, yeah. I did that with poetry, too. My kids like to act out poems we were memorizing, and I, I thought, hey, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So the older children, once you do begin, um, if, and if you are a mom who has starting in, let's say your child is 9, 10, 11, or even older, um, do not despair because in the handout you will see the instructions on what to do. But I will say it very briefly. Treat narration as its own subject for a while. Don't try and include it into what you're already doing. But say and, and make it a very short period of time, 15 minutes a day max, and maybe less if your child is younger. And what I suggest is you start with Aesop's Fables. And you read what you say to your child. I'm going to read this one time. I want you to listen very... Yeah, oh, soft eyes. I forgot that part. Soft eyes, Mom. Soft eyes. Not hard. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm going to read this one time and you listen to this. But it's... Okay. Okay. <laughs> smiling, soft eyes. I'm going to read this one time. I want you to listen very carefully. and Tell me back in your own words. So you read a fable. Now, if this is your child's first time narrating, they're not going to do a very good job. But you smile and you say, thank you. We'll do this again tomorrow. So you don't try to keep pulling something out of them at that point. No, no. 
That's the kiss of death, really. Okay, okay. The kiss of death. Okay, that should do it. Yeah, okay, moms. The kiss of death. (laughs) Well, and here's why. You've already told the child there's only one right answer. By, By trying to pull things out of them, you've said there's only one right answer. And so now they have to guess. Wow, that that is powerful. Thank you just for that. Yes. So the next day, you do it again with a different one. Or, uh, yeah, or yeah, I would say a different one. I was going to say you could give them the option of the same one. But no, it should be a different one. And you do it again. And by golly, you will see a very big difference. And what you want is for your child, and this is true of any area in uh, learning, but particularly with narration, you want them to be completely successful at what they do. So even if it means reading aloud something a little lower than their comprehension level when they're reading print, it's okay. Because they're learning a, a skill that has atrophy from when they were tiny. You didn't have mm. to teach young children to be oral. They bubble. I mean, I have this two-year-old grandson that is just incredible. And he's just bubbling over and, and imitating everything you say and listening to every word. And, but we teach them to stop listening. It's what we do when we tell them there's only one right answer. Mm. Wow. Well, that is, that is very, very helpful. Um, now, um, with, the, with the moms, so... so Lately, there's come up this whole idea of studied dictation. Um, did you do that with your daughter? Because I didn't. I, I remember a situation where I was dictating to my oldest son a passage, and I told him to do it without looking. And when I went back to see it, um, what he'd written, it was just a mess. It was all over the page, and I got really upset with him. This is my oldest son, and I had no. Uh, I was not as sanctified at that point as I was later. <laughs> but um, it's, he said, well, you told me to do it with my eyes closed. Oh, and I was like, hard. oh, my, I, I'm so sorry. Oh. I, I, knew, I knew your handwriting was better than this. So he had yeah. written the whole thing. That is not what we mean by dictation. What, 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 how did, did you use dictation? Yes, I did. And I used both uh, dictation and studied dictation. And okay, I'll explain. So there's there's uh, a yeah. difference. Okay. There's two different kinds, but let me explain the purpose of dictation. The purpose of dictation is to teach spelling and, and to some extent, grammar. But mm. the primary focus is spelling. And the way that you do this is not to teach spelling lists uh, because a, you recognize a word in context. And if you just make a list of words, then you aren't. You may have a child who's good at, at learning that, but a whole lot of others who aren't. Right, right. So when you do a dictation, what you do is select from the readings you've done that. This, well, let me start over. The mom uh, on Sunday night, or prior, depending on how organized you are, mostly it was me doing it Sunday night, but you select uh, a paragraph. Now, the shorter, the younger the child, the shorter the paragraph. Mm-hmm. So if you are asking us, you wouldn't ask a five-year-old to do this. And maybe not a six-year-old, depending on their developmental readiness. But a seven-year-old, you can begin. But by the time a child is in ninth or nine years of age, typically, every child is different, but typically, they should be able to do a, a pretty good paragraph you know, maybe three or four or five sentences. So you've chosen the paragraph from what you are currently reading. But you take that uh, paragraph, which means you have to type it out. But it only takes a few minutes. So mm-hmm. you type it out and you put the, cite the source, um, Moccasin Trail, for example. We love that book. And because it has such vivid descriptions of life on the trail as they're going out to on the Oregon Trail. So you've got this paragraph, and you present it to your child at the beginning of the week, and you explain where it comes from. And what they're going to do is study. That's why it's a studied dictation. They're going to study that paragraph. And that means that they're going to look at the words, 
And if they see any unfamiliar words, like moccasin, for example, they mm -hmm. pick, they, they look up and they see the word moccasin. And um, they keep doing that every day. Now, I would set a time for no more than five minutes. Uh, okay. And so we are not talking about anything arduous, but it needs to be consistent. And on Friday, I would then remove the dictation, the written dictation, and I would read it aloud and Bridget would write. And okay, so she's been looking at it every day, and then on Friday, she's going to, to um, you're going to say it, and she's going to write it down. Correct. When we're done with that part, uh, now, as she got older, I, I did it for her, but the younger ones, you'll have to sit with the child. And in this case, it's all right to say there's only one right way to do this, because we're mm -hmm. talking about spelling. Right. And, gra and grammar. Later, when Bridget got a little bit older, what I would do is I would look at her writing and I put a check at the end of the line where there was either a grammar or a misspelling. And she had mm -hmm. to figure it out. So I made it like a game. And again, she still didn't have the, the original to look at. Uh, and then finally, if she asked for it to compare it, then, then I would give it to her. Any words that she misspelled go on a spelling list for the following week. Now, in Bridget's case, she just turned out to be a pretty good speller. Uh, I, I am not, but she is. And maybe it's right. because, of, maybe it's this method. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it wasn't very often we had words that we added. But I would do the dictation the next week, just like I said, a different dictation, uh, and she'd be ready for it. But then I would also then read that word that she missed or those words uh, from the previous week. So again, you see the follow through and the consistency. Yeah. And you're not letting her look at the misspelled word. That's something, you know, right away. You, what do you do when you see the misspelled word? Do you erase it or do you? Well, that's what Charlotte Mason says to do. <coughs> yeah. She, you know, to cover the word and to picture it. And uh, I would have her do that at the end of that narration of that week. But the word still went on the list for the following week. Okay. All right. So that is study dictation, and that is something that, um, and like you said, consistency, but not um, over a long period of time. And once again, short lessons are pretty much the key to any kind of skill work that we're talking about. So um, do you have any? Well, just a minute. So the dictation, when, not, okay. when it's not studied, is okay. I, I pick a paragraph, and she he writes it. So there's, okay. no, there's no study. Okay, there's no study. You just pick up a paragraph and you and you read it to the child and they write it down as you go. Right. Okay. Shorter that's, or longer, yeah, depending that's on their children. age. I, I think that's for older children. but that's, that's for older children. Children that you don't expect to make a lot of spelling errors. Correct. Okay. And both of those are very helpful. Um, um do you, you know, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this whole narration idea and the whole, uh, and, and I'm sure this works in that too, is the imitation that the kids pick up in their own writing and how they, uh, the, the good reading, the good books, the living ideas, and then that kind of comes through in, in their, um, when they write something or when they, even their narrations, it, um, they kind of copy the style of, of the, um, the person they're reading about. And I think that's excellent training in, in style. Oh, yeah, um, I agree. In fact, one of the things that um, disappoints me a little is uh, that when kids want their children to write well, and so they buy writing programs, when in fact if, if they would follow Miss Mason's suggestions and not uh, introduce a writing program until the child is at least 12, the child will have their own voice. And that's what she says, that they develop their own voice in uh, oral and then written narrations. And you want that. You want your child to be able to think and speak for themselves. Yeah, and, you, and, the, and, and they don't have, I always say they don't have that stilted style of the format writer. You know, they, they avoid that stilting um, kind of, uh, this is what, you know, I'm supposed to say. And, you know, I just put this down and. 
Um, yeah, I totally agree about Wade. I, I think that there's so much power in narration that um, it, it, at you know late in um, eight, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grades, you can do a formal writing program at that point. Yes. And um, you, you, the child will have all this, this you're right, their, their style will be so much better and they'll be so much more comfortable. And then they won't get, get that formal writing confused with, um, with the actual, the heart of writing. Yes, um, yes. So. I agree. Now, um, you said you said you said something interesting at the very beginning uh, when I was talking to you that you started out as a storyteller. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I would love to. Um, well, I became a teacher uh, in my, um, I guess, my late twenties and went into education and really didn't like it at all. I, <laughs> I, I loved the children, but the system was not working for me at all because it's what I mean it, even then it was not any as bad as it is now the teacher uh, the whole um, pressure that is put on teachers for the core curriculum um, makes it almost impossible to do anything really extra or creative or um, but even back then it wasn't great so um, fortunately for me I was laid off and, <laughs> yeah, at the time it wasn't didn't seem like it but you know, God closes doors and he opens others. So I decided that I would um, do what I love to do, and that is to study. And so I went back to school and got a second master's. This one was in children's literature. And while I was studying, oh, it was fascinating. And I got to delve into all the classic works and understand, you know, the origins of children's literature. And it was wonderful. While I was there, I saw a poster in the English department and... Uh, it said that a storyteller was coming to town. Now, remember, I'm, I'm at college, and I'm into being a scholar about children's literature. So, again, you can see this pride thing coming in. So I see this this storyteller coming to, to the university, sponsored by the English department. And I think, storyteller? That's baby stuff. And, but for some reason, I felt drawn to go, and I did. And it changed my life. Uh, man was J. O. Callahan. He's a internationally known storyteller, and he walked out on a bare stage. He had rugby, pan, you know, rugby shirt and, and uh, corduroy pants on. I still remember it, and Coke bottle glasses that he took off when he's told, <laughs> so he couldn't see us, but he was oh, wow. looking straight at us. Uh, it was just how he did it. But for an hour and a half, he told stories using voice and gesture. And the stories just danced in the air above our heads, and we could all see it, and we could all laugh at the same time or cry at the same time. And it was an unbelievably magical experience. And I went up to him afterwards and said, oh, I, I want to know how to do that. And I guess it's a little like going up to Horowitz and telling me you want to learn how to play the cello or something. But anyway, I, I, uh, I don't know, Horowitz play a cello? He plays some musical instrument but he was very gracious to me and he suggested a couple workshops so that's where I started was uh, I started going to workshops and um, but I still had to make a living I still had to eat and I, I knew that I wanted to do the storytelling so I decided that this would I would arm myself with stories kind of like David in his slingshot and go back into wow. yeah and go back into education and make a difference with stories so for the next 15 years, I earned my living, I, I say a professional storyteller, and I certainly did lots of storytelling events where I, I performed stories, you know, in a performance setting. I did that. But the heart of my work was in education, and that was to bring imagination, creativity, oral expression, all of those things that I'm talking about today. Um, I was showing teachers and children how to bring it into their life and into their classroom. Wow! Well, that is a fa fascinating um, thing. And you, um, and you, in your curriculum, you strongly encourage that early years as a time of oral expression. Um, I do. How do you contrast that with maybe how someone might typically go about those early years? Oh, thank you for asking, Cindy. It's one of my favorite questions. Well, one of the things I mentioned earlier is that you don't have to teach children how to speak. 
they speak by listening. And that's something that children come into life knowing how to do. Now, research has shown, like this one particular study I like to quote. Uh, and by the way, there's a whole um, essay on orality that I have posted under resources on our site. So if you're interested, you're welcome to go and read it. Uh, and it explains in depth what I'm about to explain. Okay, and, excellent. And the, uh, so this research, they all the researchers did was follow three classes of people around for six months at certain times of the day, and they would count the number of words the parents spoke to their children. And they were low-income, middle-income, and high-income. And the number of words that a low-income child would be apt to hear in a day would be between 500 and 700. We're talking about three and four and five-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Middle, it went up quite a bit. By the time uh, they're in an upper-income family, the number of words was in the thousands, something like 6,000. Now I'd have to look at it again. It, it was so out of, it was so skewed. And what does this say? Well, what it says is that when you have literate parents, they speak more to their children, and their children then have this vocabulary. Now, this is the part that um, is an important piece. Children have two vocabularies. One is uh, expressive, and one is receptive. You know how we say with little guys like my grandson, oh, he understands so much? Well, that's the receptive vocabulary. In other words... Expressive is, is what they can express for themselves. Receptive is what they understand but not yet able to express. So these two vocabularies eventually equal each other. But in the early days, they're very different. And the more, that's, just, that's not even correct English, the, um, the more you, you create a difference of like reading aloud quality literature instead of dumbed-down literature the more that receptive vocabulary grows. And equally so, the expressive then keeps pace with it. But never they never quite meet until the child is in their teens. This is a fact that, that most families don't really know and why it's so important that even as a five, six, seven-year-old that you're reading books well above their ability to read but not comprehend. Hmm. That's why in our curriculum we have books um, that when I, when I first started, I said, really? Are we really going to use it? But absolutely. The children love it and they understand it. And children have a way of, of rising to our expectations. So children in yeah. yes, children need in the early years, they absolutely must have the, the nursery rhymes and the finger plays. And, and moms, if you didn't grow up with that, there are tons of books around that that can teach you how to do that even if you go on youtube and get um, finger plays or nursery rhymes and you do it with the child but don't let the child sit there without you you are the key to your child's orality and your child's orality is like the hand and their ability to become literate to read is the glove the greater the orality the more not literate, um, the more they will be able, their comprehension, their expression, everything goes up dramatically. So really you're preparing for narration um, with, with all, that, all those years before you even get anywhere near it. So, um, well, that is just wonderful. I wish that we had more time to talk because I've just enjoyed this so much, and I'm sure everybody listening has too. So we will definitely have to have you come back and, and talk to us again if you, if you have time sometime. Um, but um, this has just really been a, a wonderful talk. I think um, your wisdom and your experience are just what we're all looking for. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it's, it's been a real pleasure, and... Cindy, just to have uh, talking to another homeschool mom who loves Charlotte Mason as you do and that you're willing to be out there and, and help other moms along the way. I, I just I so commend you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Sometimes, yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to just hang up my hat and uh, move on. But uh, the oh. Lord, the Lord, I love Charlotte and I love her ideas. 
And um, so everybody, we'll, we'll put this all up on the website, but you can find uh, Sheila at charlottemasonhomeschooling.com, and she has a lot of resources there. And we'll have that narration handbook available, too, um, along with a coupon if you want to order anything from her. So um, I, I wish you well. I hope that things go well with your work uh, in Africa. That's just fantastic. And um, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Cindy. Bye.